0: This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards, and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at MedOperashop.org. To learn more, visit MaestroClassics.com.
1: Here's a quiz for you. What opera score recreates an actual city's church bells and includes liturgical texts such as the Te Deum and Sanctus? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
1: If your answer to our quiz was Puccini's Tosca, you are correct. This is just one of many operas this season with a story and music strongly tied to religion. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Desiree Mays continues a discussion on religion and opera throughout history.
2: Uh, Welcome back. I hope you all had a lovely lunch, and uh, we're going to look now at, focus perhaps, on operas with biblical sources, and and particularly miracle and prayer, Jewish religious ritual, and then move on to contemporary operas. Can we find religion in them? The biblical sources of operas have an obvious connect, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Operas such as Moses and Aaron by Schoenberg, Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saens, Salome by Richard Strauss, of course Verdi's Nabucco, and there are many others. So let's focus a little bit on operas that involve prayer and miracles. The Ave Maria has been set to music many, many times, both in and out of church settings. Here is an Ave Maria, a prayer that actually goes unanswered. Desdemona's Ave Maria in Otello, her final prayer before retiring for the night, a night in which she fears for her life when Otello will kill her in a jealous rage. Her innocence will not protect her. This is Anna Natrebko, and this time just listen to the voice in a prayer that could be offered as well in a church as in an opera. Here is Anna Natrebko.
3: Maria, piena di grazia, eletta fra le spose e le vergini sei tu, sia benedetto il frutto, o benedetta di tue materne viscere. Gesù.
2: Now, from Verdi in the Otello, um, let's switch to Puccini, a- another Catholic-raised Italian, and this time another prayer, but this prayer is answered um, spectacularly by a miracle. Sir Angelica comes from Il Trittico, three one-act operas presented in one evening, composed by Puccini near the end of his career. Il Trittico actually premiered here at the Met in December of 1918. Puccini was a composer who was completely ambivalent about religion. Raised as a strict Catholic, he was also an autoboy like Verdi and later the organist for the churches in Lucca. It was expected he would follow generations of Puccini's as the maestro di cappella at the cathedral, but religious music didn't appeal to Puccini. There's a great story of the young teenager Puccini who smoked very heavily. And in order to buy money, to to earn money, to have money, to buy cigarettes, he would take out the organ pipes one at a time and sell them one by one for money. And they say that he learned how to improvise by rearranging the church music to cover up the missing pipes. (laughs) Puccini adored his mother, um, Albina, a, a totally selfless woman, who sacrificed everything for her wayward son. No one ever matched up to her in Puccini's mind. His other close connection to Sir Angelica was his sister Iginia, who entered the church at the age of nine and spent her life in a convent. Puccini spent many hours with this sister, who by then was a mother superior, within the convent walls when he was composing Sir Angelica. And I think this is very very apparent when you see the opera, especially in this production, all the little small talk that goes on and the ways of filling the days with prayer and and the way it's sort of organized is sort of uh, amazing. Um, So he he himself was pretty lax about Sunday observance and things, yet as a man of the theater, he was fascinated by the rituals that surround uh, Catholic services. Sir Angelica is a miracle opera, a vision, a life after death piece, a work about forgiveness and compassion, a story of the love of a mother for her son, all under the eye of the Virgin Mary, and all with echoes of Puccini's own relationship to his long-dead mother. The opera is about the suffering of a young nun who, though of royal birth, disgraced herself and her family by having a child out of wedlock. For this mortal sin, the child was taken from her at birth, and she was banished to a convent. For seven years, she has done penance and has heard nothing from the family about her child. Then her stern aunt comes to get her signature on a document, handing over her inheritance to her sister, who is getting married. The aunt casually mentions the boy died of a fever two years before. Angelica collapses, calls on the Virgin Mary, and believes that her child is calling her. She mixes poisonous herbs and drinks, and only then realizes she has committed the ultimate sin, that of suicide, and she will be damned. As she prays, the darkened church fills with light, and the Virgin appears, leading a small boy who walks slowly to his mother As she dies, they are reunited, forgiven, and in bliss. So let's play um, just those final moments of this really tragic piece. Um, This is sung by Barbara Frittoli, but it is the same production that the Met is showing now and that I saw last night. It's quite beautiful. Let's uh, let's see that. Perhaps this opera is one of the best examples about um, the issue of forgiveness and compassion. It spells it out so beautifully in these moments. And for any of us, or parents, it's a it's a tough one. There's a similarly beautiful miracle opera by Massenet called *Le Jongleur de Notre Dame*, in which a poor street juggler is taken in by the monks. As time passes, he realizes that the monks serve the Virgin by writing books, by painting, by making statues, tracing calligraphy. He, the juggler, is sad because he has nothing to offer. Then he has an idea. He goes to the chapel for hours when it is empty. The prior, curious as to what he is doing, one day observes unnoticed. The juggler is juggling for the virgin. The prior is outraged. This is sacrilege. At that moment, the Virgin Mary descends the altar, steps and wipes the sweat from the brow of the juggler with her blue robe. Blessed are the pure in heart, the prior cries, for they shall see God. Another wonderfully positive example of uh, of the joy, uh, of the bliss of this moment. Now, whereas Sir Angelica was a hymn to mother-child relationships, Puccini's Tosca is an opera also filled with religious symbolism, with a decidedly cynical note, as Puccini combines, as he had done in Manon Lascaux, religion and eroticism. Tosca is about the sacred and the profane. The whole of the first act of Tosca is set in a church in Rome, Sant'Andrea della Valle, And this church still stands. First of all, Puccini pokes fun at the clumsy, greedy, and conniving sacristan as he goes about his work in the church. No respect here. A painter paints a Madonna in the church, using as a model a beautiful woman who comes to the church to pray. She is actually there to aid her brother, a political prisoner, when he escapes. Tosca, the famous singer on entering the church, pays her respects first to the statue of the Virgin and then, jealous of the beautiful portrait, accuses Cavaradossi, her lover, of painting his mistress. All these goings-on in church. The peak of all this irreligious behavior comes to a head in the magnificent Te Deum at the end of Act One when Scarpia, the, the cruel chief of police, observing the ritual procession of priests to the altar sings blasphemously, not of God but of his lust for Tosca. Here Ruggiero Raimondi sings Scarpia in the actual church where Puccini set this first act. Thank you.
4: Sbirri, una carrozza, presto, seguila dovunque vada, non vi sto Sta bene il convegno. Palazzo Farnese. Fa tosca. Il tuo cuore nino Scarpia, oh, Tosca, lo e che a promessa tuo prontu sospitta Nel tuo gol
2: she knew how to end an act, right? <laughs> later in the same opera, in a heartfelt aria, Tosca herself sings a very real prayer, visidarte, I lived for love, I lived for art, why am I being punished now? Her prayer, too, goes unanswered. She kills Scarpia, but later Cavaradossi dies and Tosca herself dies as she leaps off the parapet of the Castel Sant'Angelo. In other operas, Puccini presents Chocho-san, who is conflicted between her Shinto beliefs in Japan and the religion of her new husband. When her new faith and husband betray her, she reverts to the religion of her fathers and kills herself for honor. Puccini's Manon was destined for a convent until she met De and eloped with him at a moment's notice. When later, having cast him off for a life of luxury as a kept woman, she misses Degrier and is only reunited with him when she is banished to the desert of, Los, uh, of uh, Louisiana. Desert in Louisiana. <laughs> Puccini didn't always have his facts um, right. But Degrier accompanied her there and she dies, of course, in his arms. For composers, especially in Catholic Italy, there was always ambiguity in the unresolved paradox between the artist and his relationship to the church. So while many composers may not have attended mass religiously every Sunday, the works of these masters can be, of course, deeply spiritual as their music transcends doctrines in which they may or may not believe. That's quite a thought um, and it comes up a lot. And I think you have to hear separate the man and the composer. Who are we to judge any of these people, no matter what we read about them? And the music, because the music is what transcends the background or wherever it's coming from. Now, researching this topic, I realized there was very little representation of Jewish faith or ritual until I remembered the French opera La Juive by Fromental Alevé. Operas based on Jewish stories typically come from biblical texts, Moses and Aaron, Samson and Delilah, Nabucco, even Carlisle Floyd's Susanna, based on the story of Susanna and the elders from the book of Daniel. I just wish I had time. I need to do a whole series on this. There's so many, so many great examples. But I can share La Juive and its central scene of a Passover meal with Eleazar, a Jew, officiating. The story centers around the 15th century conflict between the Christians and the Jews. Rachel, Eliezer's daughter, was raised as a Jewess, though unknown to her, her father was a Christian. She has invited her lover, Leopold, to the Passover meal. She realizes Leopold is not a Jew when he will not eat the unleavened bread. Their love is discovered, and Rachel, refusing to give up Judaism, goes to her death at the hands of her real father, Cardinal Bronier, neither one knowing the truth. Here is the Passover scene with Nir Shikov singing Eleazar. Let's now look at the role of religion in contemporary opera, starting with Dr. Atomic, which you would think is light years away from any religion, right? But that's not true. While John Adams' score does explore the development of the atomic bomb, he focuses on the character of Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist director of the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer said famously that... Quote, in building the bomb, physicists had known sin. In exchange for the resources to pursue their dreams of unlocking nature's secrets, they allowed themselves to become assets of national security. The setting is Los Alamos National Lab before the Trinity test of the atomic bomb, or of the gadget, as they called it. The opera is about a struggle of conscience, again, not too unlike the struggle of Thomas Beckett for the same thing, do I answer to man or to God? Here was the greatness of the scientific discovery alongside the horror of what that discovery would mean. Oppenheimer's struggle with the magnificence of what they had discovered and the horror at the implications of the bomb. Oppenheimer, it turns out, loved poetry. The libretto is filled with poetry, that of Baudelaire, Muriel Ruckheiser, the Bhagavad Gita, and John Donne. A copy of Baudelaire's poems was in Oppenheimer's pocket during the real tests. He spoke Sanskrit fluently in order to read the text in the original. But the poem that is so stunning in this opera is the one by John Donne a medieval, metaphysical English poet-priest who became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. The poem and the title of the aria is Batter My Heart, Holy Sonnet Number 14, written in 1681. Let, let me read it to you. Batter my heart, three-personed God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand. O'erthrow me and bend your force to break, burn, blow, and make me new. I, like the usurped town to another Jew, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me should defend, but is captivated and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would fain be loved, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, and break the knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Now that's not an easy poem, right? English professors teach whole courses on this, (laughs) But it is, it's very meaningful and, and absolutely perfect for the dilemma of Oppenheimer at this moment. He, he wants to be true to truth, and yet he's building something that is, that is so the ultimate evil, right? So let's hear a little of that with, to me, the, the, the greatest singer who could possibly interpret, who did at the uh, premiere performances, uh, Gerald Finley, Batter My Heart.
4: BATTER MY HEART FREE-PERSONED GOD FOR YOU AS YET BUT and seek to mend, batter my heart, three percent God, that I may me, untie, or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I Grab to you and throw!
2: not amazing yeah isn't that amazing and you know this is no less a prayer than uh, than the ave maria or or, or any of the other visidarte it's a prayer at final moments of desperate need uh, it, it's an amazing it's an amazing piece and actually the the um it's it's the, co- the poem is called um, batter my heart three person god and it was from that three person god that oppenheimer got the name trinity which was the test site in Alamogordo. And those of you who come to New Mexico, we can show you all those those good things. But that is a prayer, and that's a very contemporary opera. From here, let's go to another contemporary composer, Messiaen, and look at his St. Francis of Assisi, another opera in which there is a miracle. Oliver Messiaen's score is meditative, as are so many operas of our day, as if composers sense our need for time out, to think a little more deeply, to meditate a bit, not to go rushing through life, through the fast, frenetic pace that we live, but to stop, to put down the cell phones and the computers, and just listen and think deeply. Many, many operas, and I've seen this over and over again at Santa Fe where they've done these what I call more meditative operas, and some people love that. They say it's so great to be able, and you have to be able To let go and just go at that pace and that rhythm, it is so healing. Other people can't let go so easily and they want it to hurry up. So it's something to think about. It may not be for everyone, but I think there are many composers now in the genre and it is taking hold. St. Francis as a subject lends itself, I think, perfectly to this slow and deliberate thought-provoking style. And the section I want to show you is called The Kissing of the Leper. A leper, horribly blood-stained and covered in sores, rails against his disease. St. Francis enters and, sitting close to him, speaks gently to the man. Troubled by the goodness of St. Francis, the leper is stricken with remorse. St. Francis embraces him and, miraculously, the leopard, leper is cured and dances for joy more important, however, than the cure of the leper in this event is the growth of grace in the soul of St. Francis. That's what Messian is trying to show. And his exhortation at having triumphed over his grief in being able to hold, kiss, and touch a leper. St. Francis in this uh, DVD clip is Je- José Van Damme, who sang the original St. Francis.
4: Donnez-moi je réclimine toujours tes frères, ma
3: voyette, l'œil.
2: you too have had a little taste of this slowing down the slow pace and just allowing yourself to go with that. Miracles don't happen in seconds and (laughs) maybe this one, it, it gives you a chance to really understand what, what is happening here. So these are very different examples, the two I've shown you today, Dr. Tomica and the Messiaen Saint, Saint Francis, and they're both contemporary opera but very different approaches, one in a soul-searching prayer of a famous physicist of our time, and the other describing a miracle from a fabled story of the 15th century. While these religious moments may not be framed in church settings depicted in the past, they are Miracles, nevertheless, whether it's in Bleecker Street or a cathedral or wherever, it really doesn't matter, regardless of setting, maybe even regardless of the setting of church or opera stage, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. There's one more amazing moment in history I want to share with you, and this one is set to music by a very devout French Catholic, Francis Poulenc. It's the true story of the Carmelite nuns at the time of the French Revolution, and the manner in which they chose to go to the guillotine. The opera, of course, is Dialogue of the Carmelites, A Tale of Martyrdom. This is what happens at the end of the opera, and I'm going to quote from you now. Um, I did a book every year for the Santa Fe Opera for 18 years, and I included that. I forgot to bring any with me today. I'm sorry, but I'll read you a little bit about um, the backstory of the, of the ending, the true story of uh, Dialogue of the Carmelites. The tumbrils grind their way through the dirty streets of Paris. Sixteen women stand in the swaying carts, some grasping the sides for support, other with their hands clasped in prayer at their hearts, their eyes lifted towards heaven and their faces calm. Wearing ragged brown dresses with white cloths round around their shoulders in some semblance of a cloak, they sing as the death cart makes its way to the Place du Tron. These are the Carmelite nuns from Compegna on their way to execution. The date is July 17, 1794. Led in holy song by the prioress, the crowd quietens and gl- grows completely still as the dreadful tumbrel reaches the square. Even the drums which roll to defiantly announce Madame la Guillotine's next victim are silent. Unaided, the nuns step down from the cart one at a time. The youngest kneels at the foot of her mother, the prioress, and asks a blessing and for permission to die. Then she rises and walks to the guillotine to the sound of her sisters singing the Salve Regina. One by one, the women go to their deaths. Their diminishing song is punctuated by the dreadful thud of the falling blade until there is only one Carmelite left. Still singing, the last nun ascends the place of execution and lays her head on the block, and then she too is silenced. The crowd slowly disperses, fading into the darkest corners of the bloody square. Ten days later, the reign of terror and the executions end. This is a true story the nuns sing the the salve regina on their way to death and that's what i'd like to play for you now the the hymn they actually sung there are many productions that do uh, very amazing things with this some are far too graphic one i would not subject you to the falling of the blood you actually see the blood it's not good some are very extreme some the one i want to show you is actually quite abstract but it gets the message across in the music of the nuns dying one by one with the thud of the blade intersecting the music of their prayer. Now, that may not be graphic, but you certainly get the whole the whole uh, meaning behind it. Um, it the, the, the The production to see of this without question is John Dexter's. From what date was it, Stuart? 19? 1988. that is on the Met site. And it is playing this season, right, still. So if you haven't seen it, don't miss it. It's It's one of the most beautiful productions here of this particular opera. And I wasn't going to tell you this little story, but it comes back as I'm watching. When we did it in Santa Fe with um, Pat Rosette sang um, Blanche and Francesco Zambello was directing it. And uh, two things. One, when I'm researching the book, I, I learned that in Santa Fe, there's everything, it turns out, including a Carmelite convent. So I thought, well, I better go and talk to the nuns and find out about what I'm talking about here. Okay, so. Then I realize, oops, she, it's a silent order. They've taken a vow of silence, and how can I talk to them? So I did a little research and find out that Mother Rose, the principal, uh, the abbess, whatever her title is, Mother Superior, is able to talk a, a little to people. So I make an appointment to go up and meet Madame Rose. So it's the middle of winter. I'm dressed in boots and coats and everything, and I go. In. I'm shown into a little silently into a little sort of cell-like room, and there's a grill with a, with a curtain across it. And I thought, oh, dear, I'm not going to be able to see her. I'll be able to talk to her, but maybe not see her, actually. So I thought, well, that's okay. There was a bench in front. I put out all my notes with all my questions. No sooner had I done that, than the curtain is swung back, (laughs) and here I am, discovered, (laughs) with all my notes out. Here she is in a simple brown robe, and it's the middle of winter and bare feet, and I'm dressed up like this. And She was wonderful. We talked for about half an hour, and at the end she said... um, would you like to see the actual hymn my sisters sang, the la, the, this last section, the, after the Salve Regina? Um, I said, oh, I would love to. And, and I watched her go out, and she came back a few minutes later. Then I had another thought. I thought, well, what about bringing the young singers to meet these nuns? You know, They can't talk to them, but um, they go. They have mass, and they're behind again a grill. You don't see them. And there's only a few of them now, and they... They're older and they have little wavery voices, but they sing and there they are. Whereas the young singers, the apprentices who are all full of life, tend to walk a bit like this As a nun. You know, they're practically skipping across the stage. And I'm watching these nuns who walk with this incredibly calm movement. There's, everything is still with this beatific, marvelous expression on their faces, the way they move. So I thought, well, let's talk to Tesco and see what she says about bringing the, the apprentice singers to meet the nuns, not to see the nuns, to watch them. And uh, Cheska thought it was a great idea. So one Sunday we all assembled and the young singers' were, eyes were wide open watching these incredibly wonderful women who have devoted their lives in silence to God to pray for the rest of us and how they moved with that calmness um, and took it back with them to the theatre so that when they did perform the nuns in the, in the opera, they had it right a sense. It's one of the great joys of this job. Like when I get to talk to someone like Ferruccio Follanto or um, uh, actually uh, Bertrand de Billy, the who's conducting Tritico, uh, last time I saw him, we did an interview with him I, here for the Met with uh, Natalie de say that was a challenge because she you know she didn't want to talk to someone she didn't know. And I had to loosen her up a bit. And he was so great, you know he, when I asked a good question, he put a thumbs up under the table so that none of you could see but him but he uh, but he was supportive so that's one of the great joys and this was a special moment to be able to um, meet with these nuns and get a, a true sense of the sisterhood and the generations It's not that long ago since their sisters went to the guillotine so um, so finally um what about Wagner in this context of God, religion, and opera? Uh, this is what he said in his autobiographic sketch of 1843. I believe in God, Mozart, and Beethoven, and likewise their disciples and apostles himself. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the truth of the one indivisible art. I believe that this art proceeds from God and lives within the hearts of all illumined men. I believe that he, a confettior, act of... Faith here. I believe that he who once has bathed in the sublime delights of this high art is consecrated to her, interesting, forever and never can deny her. I believe that through art all men are saved. Years later, he wrote in his book Religion and Art in 1880 one might say where religion becomes artificial no longer relevant, may secular even, it it is reserved for art to save the spirit of religion. And that hooks in somehow to what we've been talking about in our so-called secular time. Wagner did personify art within himself. He was the god through whose art the spirit of religion would be saved, he believed. No small claim, but he did think big, right? Cosima reported in her diary that Wagner told her, I do not believe in God, but in godliness. And a reviewer stated, Wagner was one of the deepest poets and thinkers, a high priest and a prophet, we may say, of a new religion. Now, I don't know if we'd all agree with that. The Times of London in 1914 said at the first London performance of Parsifal, Wagner's final opera was the last word of one of the greatest artists that have enlarged the spirit of man. And in a way, Wagner pulls together, I think, all of those arguments presented today about religion, art, composers, and opera. Maybe these quotes state that opera is about enlarging our spirits, both within and without a religious context. What are we to make of these statements? Wagner composes music of temptation, sacrifice, redemption, salvation, and mitleid, compassion, a Buddhist concept from where he got it. These enormous I mean, concepts can be found in different doses in his various operas, culminating in Parsifal. Wagner's Ring Cycle is all about gods, the great if flawed god Wotan, his goddess wife Fricka, her brothers Fro Donner, her sister Freya, the goddess of youth. The last of the four operas is even called Goethe Twilight of the Gods, in the finer scene after the convoluted maneuvering and trials brought about by the ring of power, Brunhilde sends black ravens to Valhalla to tell the gods, time is up, it's over, things are about to change. In her deliberate and conscious sacrifice in her suffering and loss of love, she exemplifies redemption, salvation, and compassion, regardless of what philosophy you are coming from. Wagner's Parseval, the most apparently religious of all his works, poses a riddle. It's hard to solve. The sacred character of the work is beyond question, but what form of the sacred are we dealing with here? Should Parsifal rather be placed in the category of myth? There was a battle royal about Wagner and religion here in New York at the Met when Parseval premiered here in 1903. The opera had been hailed as a magnificent representation of redemption, but numerous clergymen called for it to be banned and cautioned fellow Christians from seeing it at all. Others defended the work and the battle raged back and forth from one extreme to the other in the press. Some things don't change, do they? Um Parsifal, they said, some is a transcendent religious peace versus Parsifal is sacrilege and obscenity, decadent and offensive and should be banned. If it is not a Christian work, then is it a work of mysticism and myth? And does that necessarily divorce it from being a Christian piece or not? I don't think so. Tony Palmer's documentary, Parsaval and the Search for the Grail, which stars and is narrated by Placido Domingo. Some of you may know this, you can look later. Parts of this are wildly controversial. You'll be angered. I was. But on the whole, it's a fascinating piece. It gives arguments for and against. In defense of Wagner, the director reminds us that Wagner states in the libretto through suffering, knowledge, through knowledge, compassion through compassion, love. Is that what Wagner wants us to understand, regardless of a religious context? The Bayreuth stage director, UA, Eric Laufenberg, when asked what approach he takes in approaching Parsifal, said, I'm interested in the work's core message. I believe Wagner wanted to bring out the factors of benevolence and mystery in this, his final work. And this, he said, is interesting because at this time of Pope Francis, who has de-emphasized the institutional side of the Catholic Church and stresses the factors of mercy, grace, and benevolent. Parsifal is difficult, he said. You need the music. At the end, the violins soar upwards and the harmonies become clearer and everything finally dissipates into nothingness. It's like a final breath. I'm going to ask your indulgence for just five more minutes because there's one more piece I need to play for you to, in a way, offset this. This is pretty cerebral stuff, the end of power. And it does something to you. I mean, I don't know how you describe it. It's impossible. The music does it well. Again, that, too, ends just in music. This will resonate with those of you who are happy to go off into the nothingness and the bliss of nirvana. For the rest of us who might prefer a more literal rendition of The Paradise of Heaven, I thought, what example could I use? And one opera kept coming back, insisting it should embody the role of religion in opera at the end of this presentation. The opera is Charles Gounod's Faust, which is a very opera dear to the Metropolitan Opera, of course. It tells of the devil's temptation of Faust, of his signing away eternity and his bargain with the devil, the seduction of Marguerite, of Faust's 11th hour repentance, just as Marguerite is about to die, having borne his child and then murdering the infant in her madness, in her complete despair and isolation for the sin that was as much his sin as hers. The final scene is in the prison. Faust wants to save Marguerite. Mephistopheles urges him away. She prays, just God, I surrender myself to Thee. I am thine, forgive me. For a moment she recognizes Faust and rejects him, pushing him away, his hands are red with blood. Mephisto pronounces her condemned as the celestial voices announce, Sauve, Christ is risen, Christ is born, as the walls of the prison fall away and the soul of Marguerite ascends to heaven to the sound of the organ and the angelic voices. This is the music of redemption, forgiveness and compassion. great organ chord. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been such a great audience.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. That was part two of our program on religion in opera presented by lecturer Desiree Mays. To learn more about our upcoming programs at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter by emailing lectures at metguild.org. You can keep up with all things opera by following The Met Opera, The Met Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platform. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you so much for listening.